and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Good morning, Bent Tree. Good morning, students. It's good to see you guys and girls. And uh, let me just say a special thanks to Pastor Hal and his wife Annie. Um, they have worked so hard on this. And then the leaders and all the volunteers that have been, uh, let's thank God for them. That's, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. I mean, I know it feels like, um, it feels like a day and a half, two days of, you know, like a temporary thing. But students, let me just say, if you will, this will be an eternal thing for you. I mean, change the course of your life uh, because this, this, what we do here on Sundays, what you learned about this weekend of how to study the Bible is something that will change your life. Uh, it's the only thing that will change your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that was a little free message before we get to the message. So Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out, something to take notes with. I just always encourage you to take notes if you would, not because I'm like so smart and I've got so much to say, but there's just so much from Scripture that we can pull and, and say, God, what are you teaching me? And then take this home, uh, look at it and talk to uh, your spouse about it, talk to your family about it. Well, in week one of the series, I gave you uh, the little story of Luigi's lasagna. You remember that? Uh, so, uh, and going, we're, and him going back to that very first restaurant to make sure that the family recipe was being followed. That's kind of the point of the whole series. And I'm going to give us another analogy to start us out with. Don't worry, this one won't involve food. You won't have to go to Olive Garden to seek God after this. So, uh, once again, turn on that little flat screen in your head. Just kind of get the picture with me. I'm going to give you a, a couple of pictures. It's World War II, and you're a sailor serving on the battleship Texas. Now, you need to know the battleship Texas is one tough old lady. You always refer to ships as ladies, right? And uh, she's tough, and you're proud of her. And you, along with the other sailors of the Texas, are in the fight of your life in the South Pacific. I mean, there's planes flying over. There's all kinds of stuff going on. This is a, a painting of the Texas here. There's Japanese kamikaze planes firing at you, and you're firing your ACAC guns up. You're putting flak up everywhere. It is a fight for the life of the ship. The battleship Texas is throwing all kinds of bullets up, and there's bombs splashing around. There's guys getting hit around you. You've been at your battle station, check this out, for 72 hours straight. It means you can't leave. You can't go off and have a, a, a sleep or a break or anything like that. And so you got the picture? You're in the fight for your life, and you're all having to fight together to keep your ship afloat. So now let's change the picture. It's still World War II and you're still a sailor, but now you're on the deck of the USS Enterprise. You call her the Big E. She is the most decorated ship in the entire fleet, entire war. But instead of being a battleship, she's an aircraft carrier and you get this picture. You're the pilot in a fighter bomber. You're getting ready to take off. You're getting ready to, to get the thumbs up to fly off into the air with the other, other guys on the mission to carry out your, your bombing mission. You watch the planes in front of you one by one take off slowly. You're, you're waiting for your turn. And once again, you take a quick look at the maps. Your heart's racing. You kind of take a picture. I mean, to look at the picture, maybe your family you've got pinned up there. And you're thinking, what's my mission objective today? The adrenaline is flowing as you're getting ready. You hear the, the hum of the engine is, as you finally get the thumbs up, you take the brake off and you head down the, the little uh, runway of the ship and you take off. And those pilots all around you, they're taking off from the ship. They're going into the battle to carry out the mission. You don't know if you'll all come back, do you? 
when you fly to the place where you're going, you, you drop your ordinance. It's a, it's a horrible dogfight. It's tough. Man, you hear, hear the bullets hit. You're wondering, am I hit? Like, it, it, or is there smoke coming out? And the fight's a tough one. You, you drop your ordinance. You head back to the Big E, home. And on the way, you check your fuel. It's low. It's way low. But there's a little dot on the horizon. You see her there, the Big E. You line up, you get ready to come in, uh, and, and you get ready, you put your wheels down, and, and in the Navy, you don't really land, you kind of crash every time, and you, you hook on to that cable, and when you come to a stop finally, you get out of your plane, you're worn out, there's bullet holes, you're tired, you turn your plane over to the crew to get it ready for the next mission, you you need a good meal, a shower, a good night's sleep. And the next morning you go to the briefing room with all the other pilots. You receive your mission for another day. It starts all over again. You, you walk out on the flight deck and there's your plane. She's patched up, loaded back with ammunition and fuel and all the bullet holes are fixed up. And you climb back into the cockpit one more time. And you once again, you are struck at the enormity of your ship as you're ready to take off with all your other shipmates. Because it wasn't just them. It was everybody on the ship, wasn't it? From the mess hall to the people who fueled your plane to the mechanics to the guys on the flight deck giving you the thumbs up. It's one big team. Now, here's the analogy. Some people think of church and worship on Sunday mornings like the battleship Texas. In other words, we all go into fight together like the old ship sails into the middle of the fight and we all go to our battle stations and we fight from the deck of the USS Texas. But what I want us to think of the church is more like the aircraft carrier, the Big E. The church is designed to be together to prepare us to launch out each week like a pilot. We carry out our our plans, our orders. We have this mission to carry the gospel to the world. Not to fight the world, I don't mean that, but to live the gospel out in their everyday lives where we're to go for a very, very specific mission. To share the gospel message to the world, to live the gospel message out, to follow Christ, to do good works so that the world would see God's glory. And when we do that, we take the fight to the enemy. We do. And doing that, we expand the kingdom through the power of the gospel. That's not an easy thing, is it? It's a fight in that sense. It's very grueling. We get tired. And each week, we fly back in. And there on the horizon is a little bent tree church. And you line up and you crash land on that deck. And you go, I don't know. I I, I don't know how I got here. We land, we, we get refit, we, we get refueled, repaired. Sometimes we come in wounded, don't we? Some of those bullets got us. Sometimes we, there's nothing left in the tanks. And, but then there's this family, this church that comes around you. Members. I get choked up thinking about it. We need nourishment. We need to eat. There's, there's a mess hall. We head to that and we worship, we sing and it, it fuels us up. We hear God's word preached and it, 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 it heals us. We pray, we repent of our sins from that previous week that maybe have crept in to our mind over the actions that we've taken over that week. And well, some weeks there's baptism and the Lord's supper. Man, those are special weeks, right? God just pours energy back into our tired old bones and we fellowship before and after. And if we're honest, that part is is really as good as anything else to, to see our brothers and sisters in Christ, to hug them, to go, I love you, you love me. We serve each other. Some some teach our children, some our youth, some simply serve us coffee and donuts, and they don't know how much that does. And at the end of the Sunday, we're ready to take off. They give us the thumbs up. We head down the flight deck. Maybe not totally fixed up, but we're ready to go out again into the world. Now, I think the church is designed to be more like an aircraft carrier. How we're to function as a church. Now, where does this kind of thought come from in Scripture? 
See if you can put that little analogy I just gave you in this definition of a local church. We, We looked at this the last couple of weeks. Let's go back to the definition of what the local church is. Uh, that we've had from day one, almost 14 years ago now. We, we read this a couple of weeks ago in detail. Listen again. This is a paraphrased definition of the purpose of the local church. This is summarized from that 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Here it is. The local church is a geographical community of true believers in Jesus Christ. And by faith has placed their trust in him as Savior and Lord. In obedience to scripture, they organize under qualified biblical leadership. They gather regularly for the worship and the preaching of God's word, the Bible. They observe the biblical ordinances of baptism and communion. They are united, unified by the Holy Spirit and are disciplined for holiness and go out into the community where they live to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission. To live as missionaries for God's glory and their joy. Now you get the picture of that? This doctrinal statement we just looked at. This operational belief system of how we're, we're to run the church based on scripture. Do you see how the aircraft carrier analogy kind of fits into that? Just a little bit? Yes? No? Yes? Okay. We gather together to be equipped. To be sent out. To be repaired. The gathering this time of worship, preaching, fellowship gets us equipped to go back out on that mission. Then we launch us back out. Now, what's the mission? Look at the last part of that statement. Here it is. Go out into the community where they live to fulfill the great commission, great commandment and the great commission to live as missionaries for God's glory and their joy. That is our mission. Like the pilots on the aircraft carrier, we want to understand what we're being asked to do. The mission involves two big things, doesn't it? You see it? The great commandment and the great commission. Do you see those two things? The great commandment comes to us from Matthew 22. Flip over there, if you would. Do you remember when Jesus was asked, he said, The guy asked him the question, what's the greatest commandment in all the law? Let's read it, starting in verse 37. And he said to him, this is Jesus speaking now, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments... Depend all the law and the prophets. So love your Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. That's first, right? But the second commandment, Jesus says, is like it. He says to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, who's our neighbor? It could, it could be literally our physical neighbor next door or across the street. But Jesus really defines our neighbor as those that we come across just in our everyday lives, those that God sovereignly puts into our path. Martin Luther, the great reformer, 500 years ago, called this these two things, uh, loving God and loving our neighbor. He says it's the double love. We are Christians. We are to love God and love our neighbor. Now, what's the great commission then? Well, we read this all the time, don't we? What some of Jesus' final commands to his followers. This is after his crucifixion and death, after his resurrection from the dead, and he's about to ascend back into heaven with the promise to return. So this is, must be important what he's about to say. So Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why? Because he's gone to the cross. He's been raised to the dead. God the Father's glorified him, right? So he's saying this is the answer now. Go therefore, if that's all true, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So let's make sure... And get what, get what this is saying. As we launch out 
from the local church. Let's rev the engines up. We get ready to go out. We go out into the community where we live lives every day to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission to live as missionaries for two things, God's glory and our joy. We're going to look at that in just a minute, but let's zero in on this. Go out into the community where we live. Students at BU, school, sports, dance, things like that. Parents, homes, your home, work. That idea that we are being sent out into the world, our little part of it, is no accident in that where we are being sent was designed by God in his sovereignty very specifically for you. Now think about this. Even missionaries that move to a foreign land to share the gospel with an unreached people group, ultimately they have to live in a local community setting, even in that foreign land, to get to know the people, the culture. They begin to live life in the midst of that local setting, that culture. So here's what all Christians need to know from this message. Write this down. This is important. The gospel is to be lived out in the local setting with both words and deeds. The gospel is to be lived out in the local setting with both words and deeds. Why do I say words and deeds? Well, like we literally share the gospel message, the story of Christ's coming with those people that God puts in our path. The forgiveness of sin. That God came. But then we also share the gospel and how we physically live our lives, our deeds, and how we treat each other and treat the world out there as we handle the ups and downs of life. That's where people really watch us is when the rough times hit Christians. Well, I think that can be true as uh, that truth can be found in this. When I've seen short-term mission trips and led short-term mission trips, sometimes to other parts of the world, foreign countries. Sometimes I've noticed in myself this idea, and others too have said this to me, is that in a way it's easier to share the gospel with people on those trips that I go see in those foreign countries than it is with my own family and the own people I do life with every day. Now that's a pastor saying that. The answer is that people we do life with every day, they know that we're messed up, right? They know how screwed up you are. So you see on those short-term mission trips, sometimes we can hold it together for a short period of time in our mind. But the key is how do we do life in the spheres every day of people that God has placed in our path? So write this down. Christians must live authentically gospel-centered lives. Christians must live authentically gospel-centered lives. That, that your whole you, the reason you live life, is based on the gospel. So what else do we mean by this? Like, like Paul, do I need to cut out some of my cursing and drinking and swearing and some of my foul jokes? Well, yes, that would be a good plan. <laughs> but that's not really what we mean. It's the drive or the motivation that is key in understanding how we live gospel-centered lives. Now watch this. We don't cut out that sinful stuff out because we want God to notice us and love us more. Like, hey, he's finally quit cussing. I guess I'll save him. We don't try not to sin to somehow get God to, to notice me. Like, God, have you noticed how many times I've not said that word Now listen, God knows your heart. He knows your heart better than you. He knows how sinful and screwed up your desires are. We mean that as we get to know Jesus though, as we get to understand his word and he speaks to us and we follow Jesus because we love him. Do you see that? We begin to be changed by the Holy Spirit so much so that we love him more and more. And get this, as the Holy Spirit starts to begin to change our hearts, we develop something called spiritual maturity. And it starts to show. We say, God, I want to follow you. I love you. And suddenly we're, 
We've got this love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. We call that spiritual fruit that's produced, like a, like a fruit tree that starts to grow in our lives. You go, listen, I didn't do this. I'm a, I'm a drinking, cussing guy. I don't, you know, I don't, but, but because I love Jesus and he's changed me, I've got love for people. In other words, when you follow the teachings and the commands of Jesus and the Holy Spirit begins to change you, it's not that you are somehow perfect. But you do want to cuss less, swear less. You do want to start cutting some of that sin out. And, and you go, why? Because I, because I love Jesus. Do you see the difference? Not to put on a good show for God. Like, whoo, God, I'm finally living right now. But because you realize that Jesus wants you to follow his teaching and only let wholesome things come out of your mouth. You don't want to drink to drunkenness anymore. I'm not saying it's bad to drink. You don't want to drink to drunkenness anymore because you know that that's something that God said in his word is a sin. And because you love God, you want to follow him more, you cut that out. Okay, back to the definition of how the church operates as a body during the week. Okay. Christ followers are to take off from the aircraft carrier, the church, to, look at this, go out into the community where they live, that's key, to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission to live as missionaries for God's glory and their joy. Now check out that last line there. What is the purpose statement here? It's right at the very end. The goal, the goal, the ultimate goal The purpose in carrying out our mission is for God's glory and what? Our joy. Brothers and sisters, this is at the purpose of Christ followers, how they live. This is the the answer to the question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Very first question. Look at this. The question is, what is the chief end of man? Like, what's our purpose on earth? What is it? Here it is. The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And some of you are like going, isn't it like to suffer and life's not no good and stuff? No, no. What's the chief end of man? Is Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, if you can master this idea and truly begin to understand it, take it into you, this truth is something that you can rest in for the purpose of your life. Because this is the point of why you and I suck air. It's why you were created. This is a wonderful assertion, but can we back it up from Scripture? You bet we can. Look at this. Let's find out. Look in. Psalm 86, verse 9. I'll just show you because we're going to jump around here. You can turn to them if you want. But all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you. O Lord, and shall glorify your name. In the end, that's the picture. All the nations that God has made shall worship before God and give glory to his name. The Apostle Paul speaks of this specifically in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him, talking about Jesus, and through him, Jesus, and to him, Jesus, are all things. How many things? All things. To him be glory forever. Amen. To to Jesus be glory? Yes. Now check this out from God's prophecy through the prophet Isaiah, recorded in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 21. Old Testament book. So your people shall be righteous. Your people shall be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, God is talking here, that I might be glorified. He says, my people going to plant them. He uses that picture of a tree. He said, and they are going to do what? That I might be glorified. That's their purpose. Now, God will bring his people into the promised land. In this case, it's referring uh, not only the promised land, but eternity with God. Now, what's the final result? God will be glorified. The Apostle Paul sums it up well. This is a great summary statement. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Paul says, So whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Now check this out. Everything that we do can be done in a way that glorifies God. 
Did you catch that? Everything you do in life, there is a way to do it to glorify God. That's our purpose. Both as individuals and as a church is to first bring glory to God. That's our purpose. And then when we bring glory to God, what is the result? Look at the, look at the Westminster Catechism question. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Oh, there's so much in this statement. We could, we could preach another 50 minutes right here just on this. So let's do it. I'm just kidding. I won't go down. Now, here, this goes against the world's narrative of what it's like to follow Jesus, to be a Christian. The, the world says that's baloney. The world would say to be a Christian, it's always about thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Rules, rules, rules. Now, don't do this. Don't do that. That's what the world would say, right? The world would say being a Christian means that God doesn't want you to have any fun and life is no good. Ultimately, that's a false narrative. Surprise, it's the world. I mean, it's true that life for a Christian is very hard. The daily battles are difficult, but those battles can be fought in such a way of following Christ that it brings glory to God. And when we do bring glory to God, that our ultimate goal as believers to bring glory to God, and in doing so, we are promised joy. Dare I say happiness. What's so difficult about words like joy, happiness, is is that They're thrown around so much that they've lost much of their meaning to us. But what we're talking about here is experiencing the joy of the Lord. The Psalms are good places to try to get a grip on the meaning of happiness, the meaning of joy. Now, Moses writes this Psalm and he asks the Lord in Psalm 90 verse 14, he says, satisfy us in the morning. Underline that. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Now, when you see this word rejoice, that is literally to make a sound because there's so much joy in you to make that sound. The idea of joy is summed up in that word, satisfy us. You were created for God's love, and it's only God's love that can satisfy you. That's what we're talking about here. We use those words like happiness. What a, what a, a word, right? Like, what is happiness? We don't know. But what is joy is so much deeper to be satisfied with God. Check out this psalm that speaks of our joy of our completeness with a picture. It says this in Psalm 144, verse 12. By the way, this is a great way to just pray in the morning, uh, just to take a psalm like this, go through this. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown. Our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full Providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure and bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Wouldn't that be nice? Blessed are the people whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. You get what the psalm is doing there? It's just painting a picture, isn't it? Of a life of satisfaction. Now we try to picture that and it's almost impossible. But a life full of blessing, material wealth and purpose and meaning. And that stuff is always, always increasing. No distress in our streets. That God takes care of everything. Here's the great passage as the angel Gabriel is announcing the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. You remember we read this at Christmas? And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Have you ever wondered why it's, it's not great news and great joy? Have you ever wondered that? Like, no, it's, it's great news. No, 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 it's good news. Go, no, no, it's great. No, it's good. The angel Gabriel is talking about the gospel that is good, as in good versus evil. Do you see the difference? This is good. 
good news. This is from God, that God is going to be born. The ultimate God uh, coming to earth is the ultimate good. The evil will be destroyed. Uh, the good is coming, Gabriel says. He says he's, he's here. He's in, a, he's in a manger. And the result is that Jesus will bring awesome, awesomeness, joy. More joy than you could ever fathom. I don't know. I can fathom a lot, can't you? Are you getting what bringing glory to God and how we're to live our lives then brings us joy here on earth as we follow Jesus? But probably the greatest picture of our joy that will come in the future we read in Revelation 22, verse 3 and 4. John tells us what he hears and sees. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne. He has a picture of heaven. He's there. He says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore. I love this. Check this last line out. For the former things have passed away. Praise God. Ultimate joy comes only from our relationship with God through Jesus, the Son, God the Son. We Christians have that relationship right now. We have access to that. And there is joy. But in the end, in the end, when we're in heaven, as C.S. Lewis puts it, I love this. He says, in heaven, when we're finally with God, and all the bad and the evil things will become untrue. I like that. I like that. Praise God that the former things have passed away. What are the former things? Sin, temptation, pain, sorrow, lies, betrayal, hurt. Praise God, that stuff will be gone. Even the temptation to sin will be gone. And we will be made perfect in our ability to love in every way. You get what we just read. That's the last chapter of the Bible. Did you catch that? Write this down. A Christian is to live their life for the purpose of bringing glory to God. And that result... That results in joy in the Christian's life. A Christian is to live their life with the purpose of bringing glory to God, resulting in joy in the Christian's life. What we're talking about is relationship with God. How do we do that? By trying not to just sin as much as we can. No, 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 no. It's this, good works done in Christ's name. Either when we talk about the great commandment or the great commission, this is the great commandment, what are good works? Write this down. Only those acts that adhere to God's commands can be considered truly good. Now we're going to talk about what I mean here, but this is about to blow our mind. Only those acts, those deeds that we do that adhere to God's commands can be considered truly good. But they're not truly good because we performed the good works. I want you to get this, but this is some deep water. We go deep to what? Grow deep. You're going to grow deep here. Let me see if I can summarize the doctrine of good works that we're called to do in our lives. This is how we live our lives. This doctrine is laid out in the 1689 Confessions. All right, actions that lack this divine sanction of God, no matter how well-intentioned our good deeds are, are not genuinely good. That's because our desires come from our own corrupted, sinful heart. We still want sin, even though we've been made righteous. Even though as believers, we're forgiven of our sin, given the righteousness into our lives, the righteousness is imputed into it. Our motivations are still tainted by sin. You know it in your heart, don't you? We're still jacked up with our desires, even when we desire to do the very best good things for God. 
But when true believers demonstrate their faith through the good deeds, even though they come from our still sin-stained motivations, we are showing gratitude to God. I want you to get this so bad. I hope this makes sense. When believers practice good works in those little areas of our lives where God has placed us, we promote the gospel. We silence the critics and we honor God. Believers are God's creation made to perform good deeds that lead to sanctify our lives and eternal life. Now, read this verse with me. You know this well, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, talking about believers, created in Christ Jesus for what? Say it with me, good works. That's what we're created for, for which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now check this out. Make sure you grab a hold of this, this doctrine. This is, this is good. Before creation, before anything existed, God chose you to follow him as a believer. He actually planned out the good works beforehand, before anything existed. He planned out the good works that you would walk in in that day. He's talking about today. Changes your view of God, doesn't it? God planned out good works for believers in Jesus to carry out. Now, why did he plan those good works out? So that we should walk in them. In other words, live our life. So that we would what? Bring glory to God and then bring joy in our own heart. Here's what we have to understand. The ability to perform these good deeds comes only from Christ's spirit, not from believers themselves. To truly accomplish good works, good deeds that God has predestined for us to accomplish requires the Holy Spirit And the grace we have already received by being born again. However, this doesn't excuse believers from our responsibilities. Now watch this. Rather, it encourages us as believers to actually engage the grace within us. Now Paul, what are are you talking about, Paul? Listen, listen close. Even the most virtuous believers cannot claim to have done more than their fair share, their duty. We haven't ever done more than God expects because inevitably we fail in our obligations. Do we not? Our very best deeds can't earn us forgiveness or eternal life. Only Jesus' atoning blood can do that, right? So write this down. Our good deeds add nothing to our justification but prove that we are justified. Our good deeds add nothing to our justification of being declared righteous. That's what justification means. But prove that we are justified. We do them because we are justified. Because there's this vast disparity between our deeds and the promised glory. There's this immense gap that exists between humanity and And God, our good works neither benefit God nor compensate for our past sins. Now, this is going to be this is going to be hard to get, but you're going to get this. Like God doesn't need our good works to get Himself glory. He allows us to do good works for our benefit to bring glory. That's for us because He loves us. Now, I mean, regardless how. Regardless of our efforts, we are merely fulfilling our duty to remain unprofitable servants. Here's the deal. This is why we do good works. You ready? Though tainted with serious imperfections every time, in every situation, our good works are accepted by God through Christ Jesus because of the righteousness of Jesus imputed into our account. Now, if you get this, Oh, it is a life changer of how you live. Our good works, our good deeds are accepted by God through Jesus Christ because of the righteousness of Jesus imputed, added into our account. Like think of me preaching up here. It's easy to do because that's what I'm doing. That's a good work, right? 
That should bring glory to God. God should like that. Look, I prepared. I got this already. But look at this. Look at this. Even my motivations for preaching still tainted by my sin-tainted heart. Do you see that? Now, I've been forgiven of my sin, but even my very best efforts, my good works, don't earn me any righteousness in God's eyes. Because I'm doing it on my own without the grace of Jesus imputed into my account. Even preaching the word of God, the gospel, the very best thing I have to offer him, without the grace of Jesus imputed into my account. My preaching is like a bunch of filth. You know, how could that be true? The prophet Isaiah summarizes this truth for us in Isaiah 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds, our good deeds, are like polluted, like a polluted garment. Now let's get gross for a minute. Like our very best stuff, the best things we've ever done that we offer God. We go, God, here's, here's my preaching. Here's my good service to people. Is no better than soiled toilet paper swirling the drain as you flush it down. Gross, right? And that, that's our best. That's our best stuff. And yet, that is exactly what that verse is saying. The very best we have to offer God is a pile of used toilet paper. So why even try to do good works for God? Because Jesus has made us complete in him. Did you catch that? He uses my preaching. He uses our good deeds to bring himself glory and our joy. Because God views our good works, not through our good works, but through his son, and the reward, even though we're, we've got flaws in us, he views us through his son. He goes, oh, it's wonderful. Your good works, oh, that's great. Because we're in Christ Jesus. Because we are in Jesus. God looks on us and looks on our good works like Jesus himself is doing those good works. Do you see that? This is powerful. If you'll grasp it, it will change how you live your life. But what about unbelievers? What about the good stuff they do? What about their good works? Does God see all their good works and say, hey, look at Charlie or Hank or Leslie and think, you know, I'll let them into heaven because at least they're trying to do something good in this life. It's a wrong view of God. Although good works by non-believers may be useful and adhere to God's commands because they are not rooted in faith, even their so-called good works are seen as sin in God's eyes. Even unpleasant to God, like odorous, like ugh. And because of that, an unbeliever's good works don't qualify them. They can't qualify for God's grace. And for an unbeliever, their so-called good deeds and done in this life are considered sinful. Crazy, isn't it? And their neglect to do good works is even more sinful and displeasing to God. So what do we say? What do we say here? How does this apply to actually how we live our lives out? Well, our aim, the believer's goal in life is to live our life in such a way that our lives bring glory to God. But even that itself comes from the grace of God as Jesus' righteousness is poured out on us. And as we live our lives loving the world, loving each other, what is truly happening is that Jesus is loving the world through Christians. Do you see that? So how, how do we relate this to church? I mean, Bentry. Remember that analogy we started with with the battleship, the aircraft carrier, the big E? We said that church is really designed to be more like that aircraft carrier. Not that our church doesn't go into battles itself together. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we do. But the main function of the church becomes a place where we land our plane, refuel our lives, get trained, get repaired, get ready to send out on the mission that God has for us. You see, the work of the ministry is done here at the church as we prepare to go out in the world and love them. Even though, let's admit, the world is hard to love, right? Difficult to love. 
If you're not committed to the attending and serving at church every week, not missing unless you're sick or out of town. No other reasons. A, you're not fulfilling God's given role in the body of Christ if you're missing church. B, you're disregarding your comrades, your mates that need you, that are landing with bullet holes in their plane and they're, they're going, I can't go on. And C, you're not getting refueled for the mission yourself. But it's out there where the real battle happens. In those little moments where we come across unbelievers and they see our good works that God uses to bring them to himself. They hear the gospel from our own lips and they see it lived out when we go through, when we go through the storms of life. Jesus said this to his disciples in Matthew 5 verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He's put you where he's put you so that the world can see you. Nor do people light a lamp and put put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all those in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? Good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When they see our good works... They glorify our Father in heaven. They say, I want that. I want that. Do you see how that works? Last week I gave you an example of the American church that what they've done in the past and how it has become in many cases liberal and forgotten its message and mission altogether. Those mainline churches that thought the good works were everything and they could simply live out the gospel message without saying the gospel. Now they're in the final throes of death. Then remember how some of the churches today are beginning to make the same mistake, getting rid of the gospel. They go, hey, we'll do some good works. We'll do some good works and that'll save us. They're well-meaning as far as a sinner can be well-meaning. They've tried to make church you'll remember I said a professional church where you just come and you just consume and then you leave. We don't even know your name. And yet they're going light on the preaching and say, but do some good works out there. You see, I think what has happened to the American church that has happened to many church bodies is they've become more like this ship. Instead of a battleship or an aircraft carrier, they want a cruise ship where a small staff is going, hey, can I feel your orange juice for you? Is the, is the music okay for you? Is it good? I go, oh, you, you choked a little bit on that message? I'm so sorry. We won't put that in there ever again. <laughs> we want everything done for us. Many of us think that this life is a a battle, but not as a battle, but a cruise ship in the Caribbean. Well, Jesus will come back and take me home. This is a relaxation until Jesus comes back. And yet, that could not be further from the truth. Because you see, I think we are an aircraft carrier. I think we're at war. I do. That we, we do what we can to take care of each other. Mend each other's wounds and get ready to take off again. Many times at the end of a Sunday, I, I weep for you. Because you believed that I didn't need church this week. My life was pretty good. And you don't realize how wounded you are. You don't realize you're out of fuel. And I look on the horizon. And you never come. What is the church? It's this, that we all work together for the mission. It takes all of us. That's what the church is called to be, to send us all back out. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I love this church. I'm still amazed that you have brought us into this place, that you have started this church almost 14 years ago now, and over 14 years when I think of the core group meetings before this church started. And God, I just sense that you are doing a work in this church even now. 
to blow our minds to say, what do you want us to do? Say what you want us to do. And, and so God, my, my answer is, God, anything you want. God, I lift up our church family right now. Those individuals that have landed on the deck of the USS Bentree and they're shot up, they're wounded, they're out of fuel. But God, you have spoken into their hearts. Holy Spirit, would you move in people's hearts? Would you refuel them? Get them ready. God, I pray for those in our church family that have thought of this more like a cruise ship. That they're on the edges, kind of watching the planes take off and land. And they say, isn't that interesting? God, would you draw them into the fight? Would you make them a part of our church family? God, I pray that each of us would walk in the good works you have laid out. Not for our glory, but yours, God. God, I would pray for joy in the middle of serving. God, I lift up our our students that have gone through the Bible boot camp. God, I pray... Those that are believers, you would call them to a life of service in you, whether moms or dads or whatever careers or being in the church or God, that you would make them to all that you've designed them to be. And God, I pray for the ones that are not believers yet that you've not called to life. God, I pray that you get past all the lies that the world tells them. You love them so much and yet, God, I know the world is just trying to steal their hearts. God, would we be a place that would be able to equip and train young students that they would be the fighters of the world, that they would be a new generation that you are raising up and that we would be a place to send them off to do your work, God. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious and holy name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit bentreechurch.com.